Well, we are going to finish up Matthew chapter 24 today. Uh, Matthew chapter 24 is all about the return of Jesus to earth. And we have been looking at uh, all the signs that point to his return. And now we're in that section of the sermon where Jesus says, you need to live your life in light of his soon return. Let me pray, then we'll read. Okay, Lord, um, I pray that you would give us eternal perspective this morning. Remind us that this life is not all there is and that you are coming back. And what we believe here and what we do here affects our eternity. So Lord, may you change, uh, change our lives, change our hearts because of our time spent this morning in your, your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I, I read the scripture, um, have I ever mentioned a guy named John Piper to you before? Yeah. Um, y'all need to read this book. It's called Don't Waste Your Life. And uh, some people read it and they go, I didn't like it. Well, you need to read it until you like it, right? In fact, you need to read it until you align your life with it. Because if you, your life isn't aligned with it, then you're probably wasting your life. He begins the book um, talking about the fact that his father was a traveling evangelist who went from city to city to city in different churches. He would preach the gospel and then he would come home and tell stories about how the Lord had worked. And um, John Piper remembers one particular story his father told about an elderly man who attended a church all his life, but he was not a believer. He made it very clear to everybody that he was not a believer, and he was not going to become a believer. So Piper's father preaches in this church, and the guy places his faith in Jesus. And this is what Piper writes. The church had prayed for this man for decades. He was hard and resistant. But this time, for some reason, he showed up when my father was preaching. At the end of the service, during a hymn, to everyone's amazement, he came forward and took my father's hand. They sat down together at the front pew of the church as the people were dismissed. God opened his heart to see the gospel of Christ, and he was saved from his sins and given eternal life. But that did not stop him from sobbing and saying as the tears ran down his wrinkled face, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. This was the story that gripped me more than all the stories of young people who had died in car wrecks before they were converted. The story of an old man weeping that he had wasted his life. In those early years, God awakened in me a fear and a passion not to waste my life. The thought of coming to my old age and saying through tears, I've wasted it, I've wasted it, was a fearful and horrible thought to me. And that's what Jesus is going to have us focus on. Not wasting our lives. He says this, Matthew 24, verse 44, Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the question is, how will he find you? Right. So then he gives this parable. 
of a, a steward, a manager of a home. Right? Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Keywords, faithful and wise. Faithful person is one who knows his job and does it well. Right? So who is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? So this is the, call it the head butler, the person in charge of all the other servants. And his main job is to feed them, feed the other servants. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. His master shows up, could be a day later, could be a month later. He doesn't know when his master's going to show up, but he wants to be found faithfully serving the other servants. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant, so this is a good servant, a faithful, wise servant, this is a wicked servant, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. And what's he going to do to him? Look at this. He'll cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He goes to hell. Right? What is the point? Here's the point. A non-wasted life is a life that's devoted to faithfully serving the master as expressed through faithfully serving others. Let me say that again. A non-wasted life, according to this parable, is a life devoted to faithfully serving the master. And how do you express that? By faithfully serving the other servants. That's the point we need to get. Now, let me apply this in two ways. First, I want to apply it to every Christian. And then secondly, I want to apply it to pastors and teachers and leaders because uh, it seems that this guy has been placed over the others um, to feed them. There seems to be a special reference here to Christian leaders. But first, let me just apply it to every one of us. The sudden return of the master catches the servants in the middle of doing what their hearts desire. Okay, so the suddenness of the return, all that is saying is when, when nobody's looking, what do you do? Well, you do what your heart desires. Now, some people will be caught serving others. Why? Because their heart has been changed. Others will be caught serving self. Even though they may be pastors, even though they may be uh, Christian leaders, even though they may be teaching in some Christian capacity, some will be caught faithfully serving others. Others will be caught serving themselves. One is rewarded. The other goes to hell. Now, this is not teaching salvation by works. It is teaching that our works reveal 
our hearts. Right? A heart with true faith is going to act differently than a heart without faith. Even though both profess to have faith. Even though both profess to be serving the master. So, which one describes you? Are you, if Jesus were to return, boom, right now, would you be caught serving others or would your life be more about living for yourself? Serving yourself. Now, you sit here and you go, wow, boy, I, I, I do. I, I spend far more time on myself than I do serving others. I better step it up. Can I save you about 25 years of frustration? If your life right now is characterized by selfishness and serving yourself, not serving others, you don't need to try harder. You need to get saved. Okay? You need not more effort. You need a heart transplant. Um, you know, when you come to church... The goal is not for you to hear a bunch of rules of how to be a better person and go out and try them. The goal is for you to realize that you are a miserable sinner who can never please God. Therefore, you come to the cross of Christ, you fall on your knees, and you say, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. And he not only forgives you, but he gives you a new heart. You see, a lot of people have been going to church all their life, and all they do is they take notes on how they should behave better. They try harder for a while till the guilt wears off, and then they come back again and they try hard, and they never get the point that that all these laws, all these these rules, judging where your heart is at, should lead you to say, "I can't do it." That's why I need a savior. Look at, uh, look at what Paul says. Romans 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, in this room, you are either saved or you're not saved. As one preacher puts it, there's two kinds of people, the saints and the ain'ts. Right? I once said that in a church and a guy got mad and left. He said, that's too black and white. Yeah, either you're pregnant or you're not, right? I mean, it's, some things it's just either or. It's not, I'm kind of a Christian. Either you are or you aren't. Now, a lot of people are deceived about their salvation. One way to tell is when you read the word and you go, boy, my life doesn't seem to line up with this at all. Then you're deceived. You, you are not pleasing God. Okay. But if you read that and you go, wow, yeah, I am not pleasing God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What I need is not to try harder. I need a heart operation. I surrender. I stop trying to earn your approval through my own lame efforts, and I trust you. And you realize God will accept you based not on your performance, but on Christ's performance. Christ who lived a perfect life and Christ who died in your place. Have you come to that point where you are trusting in him, not in yourself? In fact, there was a real religious guy named Nicodemus who came to Jesus and he wanted to talk religion. And um, Jesus cuts through it all and he says, Hey, Nicodemus, 
Truly, truly, that means really, really. Listen up, listen up. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Your problem is not that you need to try harder, Nicodemus. Your problem is you need a whole new life. Not turn over a leaf in your own effort, but fall at my feet and admit that you failed and you can't do it and you need a new life and a new heart. Have you done that? Have you been born again? The result then is a heart that desires to serve the Lord by serving others. Okay, That's how I want to apply this to individuals. Now, let me apply it to pastors, teachers, uh, those who teach the Word of God. And you go, why are you, uh, why are you applying it that way? Well, Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has set over his household? The uh, church is called the household of God. So the master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Uh, There are certain people who are called, not just pastors, but Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, homeschoolers who are teaching the word of God. If you teach the word of God in any way, this is you. So um, let's talk about this specific responsibility of feeding others the word of God. Now, um, it says he has set them over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Now, there's two ways to starve people. One, by not feeding them at all. But a second way is by feeding them junk food. Right? You can feed people junk food and they can be slowly withering away. They think they're being fed, but they're really not being fed. So the question is, are you faithfully feeding others not junk food, but true nutritional food? So let's, let me do some teaching about teaching or some preaching about preaching. And by the way, why preach about preaching? Shouldn't you just preach? Well, let me put it this way. Sometimes you need to know just a little bit about something before you can really even understand what you're supposed to get out of it. Um, my, my daughter, Caitlin, you, some of you know she's a ballerina and she dances. And we've been to many, many dance recitals. And um, I remember one time she was at the Norris Center um, and she was in the... Uh, um, she was Clara in, what is it called? The, the Nutcracker. Oh, I love the Nutcracker. I just watch the DVD over and over and over. No, I don't. I don't really, I don't get it. I don't know what the mice are doing. I don't know what the Nutcrackers do. It's like a LSD trip in my mind. It's just <laughs> the most terrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. But it's supposed to be really good. Um, so once I was at the Nutcracker and do 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 the all the little girls are dancing and stuff and then it was halftime or what do they call that <laughs> intermission right so it's <laughs> it's intermission and i go out and i you know just kind of walking around and i run into her dance instructor miss maureen and um i go ah oh, this is great and she goes no it's not it stinks And I go, I wouldn't know that. I think it's great. I think they're doing a great job. She goes, well, that just shows you're a layman. 
now you've insulted me, you know. Um, but in essence, what, she, what is she saying? She's saying you need to know just a little bit about ballet to be able to appreciate ballet, right? Um, maybe another illustration. The other day we had a football game on at our house, and there, uh, we were watching it, and there were some, um, some young ladies at our house. I won't mention who it is, maybe somebody over in this section, but we won't say who it is. <laughs> and, you know, we were watching, at one point, this young lady says, what are those numbers they're, they're talking about in between the plays? I go, what do you mean? Like, third and two, fourth and three, and I'm like, you don't get the idea here, do you? You, got, you get four plays to move the ball 10 yards. And if you do, you get to start over again. You get, oh, that makes sense. You see, you got to know that to be able to understand the game and enjoy it. Now, when it comes to preaching, to this morning, Sunday morning, millions of people are sitting in churches and they're hearing a preacher preach. And a lot of them are going, oh, is that good stuff? And they don't have a clue what good preaching is or bad preaching. So I want to educate us about good preaching and bad preaching for a number of reasons. One, because we have some preachers amongst us, not just preachers, but teachers. And we all need to, to you know, raise the bar and, and, and step it up. Okay. Secondly, I just don't want you, if you go to another church, to walk in and go, oh, that was wonderful, when in reality, you're being duped. So this is, we all need to know, uh, you know, is, is this person feeding us properly at the proper time? Now, here's the key verse if you are a teacher of God's word. Paul calls the elders of the Ephesian church, and he says this. He knows he's going to go to Jerusalem and die, be arrested and die. He has spent three years in Ephesus teaching. And he says this. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood. Innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink, and here's the key, from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. There's a degree to which when you're looking for a, a preacher, you want a guy who's more concerned with what God thinks of him than what people think of him. Oh yeah, he needs to have compassion for people. But you want a guy who is more concerned with what God thinks than what you think or what other people think. And he wants to be able to stand before God and say, listen, my hands are clean because I fed your people not just what I thought they wanted to hear, not just what would increase the numbers, but I faithfully fed them the whole counsel of God. That needs to be the driving verse that guides every teacher of the Word of God. Now, um, this verse is kind of the key verse that they use in Bible school and seminary to champion what's called expository preaching or expository teaching. Let me talk about the difference between expository 
teaching versus topical teaching. Expository. To exposit simply means to explain. So expository preaching, to, to simplify it, let me put it this way. How do you, what is expository preaching? It's preaching that says we're going to let the text set the agenda for the message. The goal is to study the text and really get the meaning of what the text is saying and then explain that and apply that to the students. Topical teaching, on the other hand, lets the topic set the agenda. Oh, we need a topic on marriage. We need a topic on the deity of Christ. We need a topic on, on you name it, and you have the topic. And uh, Now, there, there, there's good topical preaching and bad topical preaching. Good topical preaching genuinely seeks to find out what the whole of Scripture, the whole counsel of God is about a topic. Right? But bad topical preaching says, I know what I want to tell those people. I have the message. Now I need a few verses to support what I want to say. Okay. Now, question. Is this message that I'm giving right now an expository message or a topical message? It's an extapatory message. (laughs) Well, here's what it is. It's an expository message in that I came to the text this week and I said, I really want to know what it's saying. It is saying, don't waste your life. And the way you know you're not wasting your life is you desire to serve the master by serving people. That's what I, I did the word studies and read the commentaries, and that's the essence of it. And now you know what I'm doing? I'm applying the message topically. Let's apply that to individuals. Let's apply that to topical preaching. Let's apply it to expository preaching. In other words, um, Sometimes the exposition of the scripture takes a short amount of time and the application takes a long time. Other times, the exposition takes the entire sermon and the application is very little. But really, it's an expository message with a topical application. Topical preaching is not bad. It's just there's good topical preaching and bad topical preaching. But here's the main issue. Is the preacher, is the teacher more concerned with pleasing people or pleasing God? If he's more concerned with pleasing people, he'll probably have a pretty big following. But Jesus said, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for their fathers did to the false, so their fathers did to the false prophets. False prophet is one who wants a following. Therefore, he will shave off the hard edges of the word of God because he knows that it's going to offend certain people and he doesn't want to offend them because what's most important is pleasing man. So let me say this. I personally believe the safest way for me not to be a man pleaser and not to be an ear tickler is to primarily preach expository messages. That way, I have to teach the full counsel of God. Now, if a preacher chooses to go primarily or all the time with 
topical messages, here's a question that I would ask. Okay? And I'm not saying all topical messages are bad. But if that is the, the way a person goes all the time, question one. Here's the question. In the editing of the Word of God, because you are editing it, you are deciding what they need to hear and what they don't need to hear. In your editing of the Word of God, are you sure you're giving them the full counsel of God? Are you sure? I mean, you've got to be a pretty good topical preacher to make sure you're covering everything when you're not just preaching right out of the, out of the text. Okay? And number two, here's another question for we who preach and teach. Are you sure you're not tainted by a desire for numbers? What's your real motive for going topical all the time? Okay. And then here's a question to the attenders of churches. Do you trust that your preacher is giving you the full counsel of God? Now, the only way that you'd be able to answer that is for you to know the full counsel of God. So why would you waste your time going to topical messages all the time when you need to be learning the full counsel of God to determine whether his topical messages are the full counsel of God? Okay, so bottom line, I think the safest type of preaching to teach the full counsel of God is expository preaching. Now, some of you go, great, I'm going to find me a church that preaches expositorily, or I'm going to go to a Bible study that just picks a book of the Bible and goes through it verse by verse. We're safe. Not so fast, bucko. Right? There's bad expository teaching, too. There's good and bad topical preaching, and there's good and bad expository teaching. Now, in the time that remains, let me give you uh, three expository errors that we as expository teachers can fall into. Okay, so here's a topical sermon within a topical application within a expository sermon. Okay, first error is what I'm going to call detailed delusion. This is the the error of thinking that pointing out every little detail is deep. Uh, I once had a a family who has left the church, uh, talked to me, and they said, well, you're not very deep. And I go, well, what, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, the church we went to before, the, the pastor would hand out the sermon outline, and not only would there be the title, but there would be uh, not only subpoints, but the subpoints would have subpoints, and the subpoints would have subpoints. It was like a really complicated outline with subpoints upon subpoints for every message. We need we need deeper teaching. Okay? If they only knew how hard I work at being simple. Right? Um just talking a lot and covering everything you can think of, and every cross-reference, and every word study, and pointing out that uh, you know, the verb is a present active indicative participle. You, you, know, you can cover so much that you're missing the main point, which is why when I teach students how to do a message, we talk about a thing called the exegetical idea. What is that? After you've done all the hard work and the study and looked at the grammar and read your commentaries and you've done your proper interpretation, now sum it up in one sentence. 
such as a non-wasted life is a life that desires to serve the master by serving others. Sum it up in one sentence. I, I put it this way. The study is kind of like dissecting a frog. The expository uh, or the exegetical sentence is putting the frog back together. Okay? Serving people a dissected frog isn't really expositing the word. It's giving them a liver, an eyeball, some guts, and thinking you've fed them. Okay? Have you ever been to Bible studies that are, you're studying a book of the Bible, but it's just kind of a running stream of consciousness of every thought the teachers had. I looked up this verse and this verse and this, and this thought hit me and this. That's lazy, folks. That's lazy. That, that's not teaching them the word of God. That's just rambling. Right? Teaching the word of God involves the discipline of not including everything you've studied and getting to the true point of the text and applying it so people understand it. Okay? Some people have an overly mystical view of Scripture. They think that if we just open it, read it, talk about it, cross-reference it, throw it around, that, that we've actually fed them. That's overly mystical. If they don't get the main meaning, you've missed it. Right? Look what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You are scriptural geniuses. You're talking about Scripture all the time. They would cross-reference the Scripture back and forth. They would teach others the Scripture, but they completely missed the point. All right? So, um, Error number one, expository error number one, detailed delusion. Don't think that just because you show up to a study with a bunch of notes and a bunch of thoughts that you've really exposited the text. Number two. Oh, by the way, interesting verse. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. This is mainly talking about gossip, but I think it can be true of Bible study too uh, as we go over in my sermon today. Okay. Um, Christless Christianity. What's that? Great question to ask at the end of every sermon, every Bible study, everything you hear on the radio, Christian radio. What makes this a Christian message? What made this a Christian message? When I teach the kids at Moody, after they teach a passage, I ask, could this same exact message have been taught at a Jewish synagogue or a Muslim mosque or at the Elks Club without offending anybody? A lot of them can. Because all they are is nice moral lessons. No cross, no Christ, no gospel. Now, here's the objection that people give. 
But not every passage contains the gospel. Not every passage talks about the cross. So aren't we force-fitting it if we talk about the cross every time we open the Bible? Well, here's my answer. We're to preach the Bible in context. Every verse in the Bible is in the context of a paragraph, and every paragraph is in the context of a chapter, and every chapter is in the context of a book, and every book is in the context of the Christian canon. The fact that the book is in there, even the book of Proverbs, even the Song of Solomon, the fact that it is in a Christian canon means that it's relevant to Christ. Okay? I, uh, just this last week, of course, I had these principles in mind, so I was you know, looking for trouble. But um, I turned on the radio, Christian radio. I won't name, I won't name the station, okay? But there was a, a, a guy preaching, was a very solid guy, okay? But it was a, uh, a message out of the book of Judges. And it was on what we can learn, leadership lessons from the book of Judges. And it was on... Uh, Ehud, the left-handed judge, he's the one who went into Eglon, who was this big obese king who was oppressing them, and he was left-handed, so he had his dagger strapped to his right leg, and he pulled it out and plunged it into the fat guy, and the fat swallowed up around the sword, and he killed him, and then he led Israel to victory. And the, uh, the lesson was, We can learn something good and something bad from this guy. Good thing is he had courage. To be a Christian leader, you need to have courage. Number two, though, he didn't have integrity. He won through uh, deception. But if you want to be a good Christian leader, you should have courage and integrity. Let's pray. Could have been preached in a Jewish synagogue. Could have been preached in a mosque. Because they read the Old Testament. Could have been preached at the Elks Club. No gospel, no Christ, no cross. Right? You go, well, how would you get to the cross from the book of Judges? Anybody have a uh, ESV study Bible? Is that a MacArthur or, or a... Uh, oh, I want the ESV notes. Anybody have the ESV? Teresa, you get... Oh, Ripley... It's a star. Okay. In the back of the ESV study Bible is a section called Finding Christ in the Old Testament. And this is the student version that doesn't have that. Anybody have the big old version? Who's got it? Oh. Caleb's got it. Let me see. All right, here it is. There's a section in the back. History of salvation in the Old Testament. And it's got verse after verse after verse of how Old Testament verses point to Christ. That's worth the, the, the Bible right there. It's a $50 Bible. You need to go get one just for that or get it online for free. Right? Now, what does it say about judges? It says this, the judges save Israel, thus prefiguring Christ. 
But the judges have flaws and failures, and Israel repeatedly slips back into idolatry, spiraling downward to chaos. They need a king, and not only a king, but a perfect king, the Messiah. Ah, we've gotten to Christ because all the judges and all the kings are failures. We need a perfect king. Now, can we learn some leadership lessons from the judges? Sure. But why, why is the book of Judges in the Christian canon? How does it point to Christ? That's what I want you listening for as you find a preacher, as you teach the Scripture. How else do you get to Christ? Well, there's all these types. The whole priesthood was a type pointing to our need for a perfect priest. The sacrificial system was all pointing to the cross. The kings were saying that we need a leader, we need a king, but they were all imperfect. We need the perfect king. Uh, The individual personalities in the Old Testament are types that point to Christ. But it's not just typology. It's just simply story completion that you can use to get to Christ. What What do I mean by that? Any story, you complete the story. Story of Adam and Eve. They sin and they fall into... A condemnation and God kicks them out of the garden. If that's all you get, you know, don't listen to snakes. That's a good lesson. But how about the fact that God uh, has chosen not to leave us in that state of corruption, but he's going to send a redeemer to defeat the snake, right? Story completion. Um, there's also law gospel preaching, What's law gospel preaching? Every time you come to a commandment, it leads us to the cross. Why? Because we always fail the commandments and we need to be forgiven. And that takes us to the cross. You know, um, here's the way a lot of people view church. In fact, I had had another, uh, another person tell me, you're not very deep. I go, what do you mean by that? We're always talking about the cross. Oh, what do you want? Well, I want like principles, lots of principles, practical principles of how to live the Christian life. In other words, and here's how a lot of people think, you get saved by hearing the simple gospel, I'm a sinner, Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, believe in Jesus, he'll forgive you. But now the way you grow as a Christian is you take notebook upon notebook of notes and of practical hints of how to live the Christian life and you just carry these notebooks around all the time. And there's, there's advice for everything. If you get stopped by a traffic cop, there's advice. If you are going to school, here's how to do it the Christian way. And, there's just, and you just got to memorize all these principles. Give us that is what they're saying. Really? That's, and if you think that, what you're saying is you get saved at the cross, but now let's go beyond the cross. Now, um, there are commandments in the Bible. Let's make it clear, there are. But they're not that hard to understand. You don't need a Christian bookstore full of practical books of how to live the Christian life. You really don't. Oh, there goes the whole Christian book industry, pretty much. Jesus was once asked, what's the greatest commandment? He gave two. He said, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. You got that? Okay. 
Now, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do you do that? Well, the Ten Commandments, you know, they, they say don't kill people. Don't steal their stuff. Don't sleep with their wives. Don't lie to them. Don't commit blasphemy. That's pretty much it. Okay? So, you got the... Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look at the Ten Commandments. That'll help you. How's that? How are we doing so far? Okay. Now, you go to the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters in uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. What's Jesus doing there? He's saying, go from the external to the heart. You've heard it said, you should not murder. I tell you, if you have anger in your heart, you've already murdered. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. It's not enough just to refrain from the act. Look at your heart. If you lust, if you harbor lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. So Sermon on the Mount just goes into the heart. You got that? Okay. So love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Check it out in the heart. Then there's the Great Commission. Go make disciples. That's pretty much it. Well, what about Marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Yeah, but give us more. There's marriage seminar. You work on those two, you'll be fine. Love her the way Christ loved the church. He died. You get that down, all the rest is cake. Parenting. Don't provoke them, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Yeah, there's a few Proverbs. Spank them, you know. Whether they need it or not, give them a spanking. (laughs) Money, money, all all these principles of money. Work hard, live within your means, give a lot to the Lord. No, but there's there's whole seminars on how to manage your money like a Christian. Work hard, live within your means, and give hilariously. What's so hard about that? Well, here's the problem. It's not hard to learn the principles. It's hard to live the principles. God's law was meant to drive you to the cross. Some people actually think that if we just expand upon the laws and add more and more principles and weigh people down with more how-tos, that that's actually helping them. We're like the Pharisees of old. One guy calls it Pharisee light today. At least the Pharisees said, if you don't do it, you're going to hell. Today we just say, here's all these rules and principles to to, to live the Christian life, and there's no threat of hell. Just, you got to do it all, and you got to come back next week for more, or there's no way you're going to make it. And we're just burdened. No wonder people say, Oh, I'm just so worn out as an evangelical Christian because they're learning all these principles that don't exist. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Look at your heart. Make sure uh, you're doing it from the heart and make disciples. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Submit to your husband. Spank your kids. Oh, I'm sure there's more. You see, the more is that the, the, the majority of the Bible is about God in your relationship with him. The laws show you that you're a failure and you need Christ. Now, if you're an unbeliever, guess what? If you're an unbeliever, you're outside of Christ and those laws condemn you to hell because the standard is perfection. 
Jesus said, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you've ever lusted once, if you've ever harbored anger in your heart, you have sinned enough to go to hell. What's the solution? The cross. Now, believers, what are the laws supposed to do? Remind you that you're a sinner and you need the cross. And here's the key. Love is a far stronger motive than law. Love is a far stronger motive than legalism. So when we're reminded of his great love at the cross, we leave and we go, not I have to obey all these laws, I want to because of his love for me. I'm afraid some of us are worn out as Christians because of all the principles. Right? So that's, that's a Christless Christianity. A, a lot of Christianity is just preaching law and moralism and examples from the Bible. If it doesn't take you to the cross, it's not Christian. Right? Last thing, passionless preaching. Um, a lot of expository teachers have this attitude. Well, as long as we're preaching through a book of the Bible... I guess I'm pleasing to God. We're in Obadiah. That the other day Caleb was—he's like, I'm, I'm studying the uh, the minor prophets, and on sermonaudio.com, he's like, Is there such a thing as somebody who's ever preached on the minor prophets who didn't bore people to death? I mean, here's uh, here's what Peter says. If anyone speaks, and he's talking about teaching the Word of God, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Do you realize you are handling the very words of God? I tell my students, your job, yes, is to study the text and come up with a lesson plan, but when you teach it, your job is to show up the most excited person in the world about your text. If, if you're not excited about your text and the truth uh, that you found in God's Word, why would anybody else be excited? Here's what I, I believe. There is no more important place to be on the planet than right here this morning. Soldiers Field, hey, there's going to be a game. That is nothing compared to being at Valleybrook Community Church this morning. Negotiations between the White House and Iran? No. This is the most important place to be in the world. And your Bible study, whether it's a hundred people or one-on-one, when you're opening the Word of God, you better be thinking the most important thing in the world is what we're doing right here in the Word of God. Because you know what we're doing here? We're saving people's souls from hell. What could possibly be more important than that, more interesting than that? 
And if you're bored with that, something's wrong with you. See, part of the problem is in our teaching, we don't want to talk about hell. So it all becomes fluff. It all becomes stuff that doesn't matter. And, And people, after a while, they go, why do I even need to go to church? The reminder that Jesus died on the cross and he was taking hell in our place should change everything. You go, well, Pastor, you sure talk about it a lot. It's because it's everywhere I look. Even today's passage. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's that referring to? Hell. How can you not talk about hell? How can, how can you go to a church where they, they never talk about it and it's just nice hymns, nice songs, nice thoughts? There is nothing more important than the preaching of the gospel. We need to do it well and we need to do it with passion. If people walk away going, well, he wasn't that excited about it, why should I be? Then we're missing the point. So what is the gospel. It's the greatest news possible. But it starts with some bad news. The bad news is, you know those commandments? Don't steal. Have you ever stolen anything? I have. Have you ever lied? I have. Have you ever lusted? Turn to your neighbor and... No, I... I right? We're sinners. And we deserve hell. That's the bad news. The good news is God in his love became a man. And he took nails through his arms and his feet to pay for our sin. And then he says, there's nothing you can do to earn my favor. But when you realize that and you turn to me and believe in me, you trust in me, you're forgiven. What could be more exciting than that. Now, final question. Have you come to Christ? Have you realized the gravity of your eternity? Have you realized that Jesus really lived? Have you realized he really died on the cross? Have you realized there's really a heaven and really a hell? And there's nothing more important in your world than to get your eternity squared away with God through Christ. Let's pray. Worship team, come on up.